Good morning. How are we doing? Good to see you this morning. Uh, trust that you had a, a wonderful uh, New Year celebration last week. So, Happy New Year, everybody. I'm excited to be uh, starting this new series this week on uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And so, if you have your Bibles with you uh, this morning, go ahead and take them out and uh, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. And for the next 12 weeks, we're going to be uh, studying the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. And uh, I think this is an important series because the Sermon uh, on the Mount really uh, gives us the heart, the uh, meat and potatoes of uh, what Jesus wanted to tell uh, his disciples. And so I, I'm not sure I can prove this, but there's some evidence that um, says that, that maybe he preached this sermon on, on many occasions uh, to different audiences. Uh, and, um, and so it's interesting to me uh, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus uh, has to say to us. And so the Sermon on the Mount doesn't uh, necessarily deal with uh, salvation as such, but it lays out for the disciple and the potential disciple of how uh, regarding uh, Jesus as king translates into uh, our ethics and daily uh, living. And so it is clear that the Sermon on the Mount had a significant impact uh, on the early church. Early Christians make constant reference to it and their lives uh, display the glory uh, of being a radical disciple or, or a radical follower of Christ. And, and all of these character traits are marks and goals of uh, really should be for all uh, Christians. And it's not as if we like major on one to the exclusion uh, of the others. There is no escape from our responsibility, right, to, re- to really hone in uh, on every one of these spiritual attributes and realize that Jesus is primarily speaking to his disciples. And we know by the end of the sermon, people in general are gathering around and hearing the message, and at the end of uh, chapter 7, they are amazed. And Jesus begins these chapters by telling us that we can live a life of victory, we can have a life of fulfillment, a life of significance. It's not his will that his children, his kids, the, the, the one that, that he has... Like in his wallet, you do know as a child of Christ, God has this wallet with your picture in it, right? Okay, maybe not. But, you know, that kind of metaphor there. His will for us is not that we're miserable and defeated in life, right? We can live joyful lives. And today we're going to look at the abundant life that Jesus has promised each one of us. And no matter what your situation is, you can experience his abundance, his blessings. Whether you're poor or rich, whether you're educated or not, married or single, young or old, hip or square. No matter where you are in your life, this message will apply to you. And so we're going to start today by just reading through Matthew 5, 1 through 16. It says this, seeing the crowds... 
uh, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall it how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it shall give light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father uh, who is in heaven. So we're going to see some truths this morning uh, about abundant living that I'd love for you to notice uh, in this passage. Go ahead and take your note sheets out and you can follow along with me as we go through uh, these three truths. Number one is that God promises us true uh, happiness, right? Jesus begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek and so on. So, so, so in the original language, that word communicates the idea of contentment, fulfillment, satisfaction. The, the word means that we are blessed. We are fortunate. We are happy. And so when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, Blessed that are mourn, blessed are those who mourn, and so on. He was saying, here, here are the ingredients that result in absolute contentment and happiness in life. He was saying that you can be happy in this life, right? You can be content, you can be blessed. And as a follower of Christ, it's it's possible to wake up each morning and say, isn't life great? Even when the circumstances that, that you find yourself in probably aren't all that great or maybe aren't all that great. So, so the next time you hear the word blessed, keep in mind it is a powerful word that promises a life of God's goodness. And actually he promises us what? More than happiness. The second thing I want you to notice is that true happiness comes in unexpected ways. Right? Jesus' method of happiness is a little different than what's taught in our culture. Right? Our culture would teach the Beatitudes maybe this way. Maybe our culture would say, blessed are the self-made for the master of their destinies. Or they would say, blessed are those who never mourn for the life will be a bed of roses. Blessed are those who make up their own rules for their answer to no one but themselves. 
Blessed are the aggressive, for they will get whatever they want. Blessed are those that show no mercy, for their enemies will fear them. And blessed are those who compromise their convictions, for they will never offend anyone. Blessed are those that, that, that have hearts of stone, for they never will be hurt. And blessed are those who win the battle, for their enemies will become their slaves. And finally, blessed are those who are recognized for their greatness and elevated to celebrity status, for they will be worshipped by many. That's the way our culture and society says happiness is all about. Jesus defines it like the exact opposite. Let's look at these verses one at a time. This list is called the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes, which means the blessings... Can, can, but can also be understood as giving the believer his be attitudes, right? Attitudes that we should be. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus sets forth both the nature and the aspirations of those who are and will be going to heaven. They have and they're learning these character traits. So verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus isn't talking about financial poverty here. Poor in spirit doesn't refer to our wallet. It refers to what? Our heart. And this is not a man's confession that he's by nature insignificant or personally without value because that wouldn't be right. Instead, it is a confession that he is sinful and rebellious and utterly without moral virtue. The poor in spirit recognize that they have no spiritual assets. Right? They know that that they are spiritually bankrupt. And with the word poor, Jesus uses an even more severe term for poverty. It indicates somebody who must beg for whatever they have or get. Poverty of spirit cannot be artificially induced. It is brought about by the Holy Spirit and our response to the working in our hearts. Poor in spirit describes the attitude with which we approach God. It is not an attitude that says, I'm better than most people. And you know what? God's pretty lucky to have me on his team. No, 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 no. It's an attitude that says, God, without you, I am nothing. Jesus says, if that's your attitude, then you are blessed and the kingdom of heaven is yours. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Here the Greek grammar indicates the, the, this intense degree of, of mourning. Jesus is not talking about a casual sorrow for the consequences of our sin, but rather this deep grief before God that we are fallen. And what do those who mourn actually mourn about? Their mourning isn't just over anything, but they mourn over sin. And to really be followers of Christ, we must mourn over our sin that separates us from God. And it's that kind of sorrow that is good because it leads to repentance. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 
And sorrow in and of itself doesn't produce anything except for what? Bad feelings. But godly sorrow produces repentance. And since repentance is a change both in thinking and in action, we can tell if sorrow is really godly by seeing if it produces repentance. So, So godly sorrow cannot be measured solely by feelings or tears, but measured by what it produces. And then verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Read, read this story about a guy who was in college, had a summer job. How many people have had a summer job like you just hate? Like I had one back in the day that I had to wash semi-trucks. It's the worst job ever. This guy had one of those bad jobs of cleaning out horse stables. He said when he cleaned the stables out, the, the older horses were used to it, and they just kind of ignored him. But, but he went into one stable, and, and this one horse, this young colt, didn't ignore him, and we, he was cleaning up, and he was, you know, doing the pooper scoop and all that stuff. But the horse kicked him in the shoulder, and he said he, how much it hurt. And he couldn't believe such a gentle-looking horse was capable of such power. Within two years, that colt became a champion show horse, he said. He, he was bigger and now really powerful. And, and yet, you know who rode that horse? A 16-year-old girl, and she would gently tug on the reins, and this horse would do whatever she guided him to do. He, he was powerful, but that power was under control. The Greek word for meek is the same word that was used to describe a horse who had been trained by his master. Meekness does not mean weakness. It means power under control. You probably already know that. Someone who is meek is strong enough to be gentle, strong enough to be kind-hearted, and yet strong enough to be forceful when necessary. But like the trained horse, you can't do it on your own. You do it as you're guided by your master. It reminds me of Moses and Joshua and David and Ruth and Mary and Paul. They all had strong personalities, but their strength was used for God's glory because it was under control. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. It means blessed are those that don't let their power go to their heads, but but who surrender it to God for him to use it as he sees fit. And those that do that will inherit the earth. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they they shall be satisfied. And this describes a profound hunger that cannot be satisfied by a snack. Like Pringles just aren't going to make it, right? My favorite, ding-dongs and Dr. Pepper, just won't get it done. This is a longing that endures and is never completely satisfied on this side of eternity. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we see people hunger for a lot of different things, don't we? We we see people hunger for power and authority and success and comfort and happiness. But how many hunger and thirst for righteousness? This is a hunger for complete righteousness. Not, Not just enough to soothe a a guilty conscience, for they shall be satisfied. It is a strange fulfillment that both satisfies us and keeps us longing for more. 
Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And this means we all should be willing to give others a break. I mean, you might be in the right. The other person might be dead wrong. Do you know what the merciful do? They care and they reach out. They they don't demand things. They give mercy. And when you do that, guess what? You receive mercy. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. The word here for pure means to cleanse or purge or or purify. It, It was used to describe an army term that had been cleansed of all its cowardly, disgruntled, inefficient soldiers. It's now clean. It's now a pure army. So when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he is not referring to those whose hearts have always been pure because if that were the case, then we'd all be out of luck, wouldn't we? Instead, he is referring to those hearts that have been cleansed. Your heart at one time, my heart at one time might have been filled with hatred and selfishness and all kinds of ugliness, but guess what? It can be cleansed. It can be made pure. And happiness doesn't come from being jaded or self-centered. It comes from having what? A clean heart. When your heart is pure, you will see God. Verse 9 says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And this does not describe those who live in peace, but those who actually bring about peace. Overcoming evil with good. You know, I've served in three churches over the last 27 years. And in each one of them, there's always been people that, that for them, conflict was just... A nectar for life, I guess. So some people just thrive on conflict. But in all three churches, there have been those people who have had this amazing capacity for bringing people together. They know how to nip conflict in the bud and, and they make the worst of enemies into the best of friends, right? We've all seen those kind of people. The question of the day for Cinderella is which shoe fits. If you're a peacemaker, if you dedicate yourself to making things calm instead of stirring things up, then you will be called what? A son of God. When you play the part of peacemaker, you're being like your heavenly father. That's why Solomon said in Proverbs 23, it is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. Learning to be a peacemaker is super important. And then we have verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they have persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for What sake are the blessed ones persecuted? For righteousness' sake, for Jesus' sake, not for their own. And I don't know if you have experienced this, but Jesus' name can bring insults and revenge and vindictiveness. I can spit it out. 
into the sphere of what we call persecution. We cannot limit our idea of what is persecution to opposition or just torture or just being physically abused. And then it says rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Literally, we could translate this phrase to say that the persecuted should what? Leap for joy. Why? Because the persecuted will have a great reward in heaven. And because the persecuted are in good company, right? The prophets before them were also persecuted. And why will the world persecute them? Because the values and the character that are talked about in these beatitudes are so opposite of the world's manner of thinking. So so always remember, Jesus said there's going to be times when you will be mistreated simply because you are a Christ follower. Understand today that persecution against Christians is taking a place not only in this country, but in countries around the world. People are being put in jail because of their allegiance to Christ. People are being mocked and ridiculed. And even in our country, if you're a Christian business and you stand up for Christian values, I mean, just know that the court system's probably not going to be your friend. We see cases where students are killed in school shootings because they're believers in Christ. And I'm sure you know somebody who's been passed over for a promotion because of their faith. Right? It happens. And to whatever extent a follower of Christ experiences persecution, he or she can take joy in the fact that they will receive a great reward in heaven. And Jesus says, if you want to be more than happy, stay faithful to him, even when you're being mistreated. And then the third thing about true happiness is, true happiness is contagious. He concludes this section by saying, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Disciples are like salt because they are precious. In Jesus' day, salt was a valued commodity. Roman soldiers were sometimes paid with salt. That's where we get that phrase, right? You're worth your salt. The disciples are like salt because they have a persevering uh, influence. Salt was used to persevere or, or preserve meats and to prevent decay. And guess what? As believers, we should have that kind of influence on our culture. I mean, can you imagine if all the people in the world whose lives have been changed through, through, through their relationship with Christ, through the ministry of the church, and we're suddenly to go back to being what they used to be? I mean, the world would spin out of control. When we live the way we're supposed to live, we are the world's preservative. Per- no, that's not the way you say that, is it? Close enough. <laughs> Lastly, disciples are like salt because they add flavor. And as a believer in Christ, you ought to be a flavorful person. And then it says if salt loses its flavor, it's good for nothing. Right? Salt must keep its saltiness to be of any value. And when it is no good as salt, it's trampled underfoot. In the same way, I think too many of us believers lose our flavor. And in all reality, we become good for nothing. 
And then verses 14 and 15 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and gives light to all in the house. And here Jesus gives the Christian both a great compliment and a great responsibility when he says, you are the light of the world. Right? Because he claimed that title for himself as he walked at John 8 and John 9. We just studied this in our Christmas series. And the purpose of light is to illuminate and to expose what is there. Therefore, light must be exposed before it's of any use. If it's hidden under a basket, it's no longer what? Useful. Just like a city set on a hill, it goes against the very nature and purpose of light for it to be hidden. And when the believer in Christ hides his light, he fights himself or herself and the Holy Spirit by never letting his or her light shine so before men. But then it says, put your light on a stand so the light can be more effective. Man, we should look for ways to let our light shine in in greater and broader ways. Right? That's the goal. And when we live that way, we lead people out of the darkness and into the light. For that reason, Jesus said, verse 16, in the very same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, So the purpose of letting our light shine by doing good works is so that others will glorify God, right? Not ourselves. To to be effective, we must seek and display that distinctive. We we can not affect our world for Jesus by becoming like the world. Notice here, Jesus never challenged us to become salt and light. He simply says, we are salt and light. We're either fulfilling or we're failing that responsibility. Do you remember when you were a kid, if you grew up in the church, right? We used to sing that song, this little light of mine, right? I'm going to let it shine. That's what we need to do. We need to shine our light on the world around us. And we can do that by living out the Beatitudes. We can live a fulfilling, meaningful life and then some. And as we consider this list of blessed, you can clearly see that living an abundant life comes through surrendering yourself to God, giving Him control of your life and serving others with a heart of compassion. That's how we become happy and then some. And it's a happiness we cannot hide from the world. Would you pray with me? Thank you, God, for your word today. As you bow your heads this morning, would you just take a moment and ask God to reveal to you which one of these Beatitudes maybe you need to have more in your life? Maybe it's one, maybe it's two, maybe it's all of them, I don't know. Take a moment and let the Lord just speak to your heart today.
Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't opened up your heart and life to Jesus. And maybe this passage on the Beatitudes just spoke to you today. Maybe God got your attention. And you now realize that you need these things in your life. First step is to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you're here today and you want to do that, you you can ask Jesus into your heart today. Just say, Lord, I surrender. God, I'm giving my life to you today. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins, to cleanse me, to, to give me new life and a new hope. So today I invite you into my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.